Greetings. This is Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher of the New Criterion. It's my pleasure to welcome you to our December 2021 issue. Regular readers will recall that for more years than I can remember now, we have featured in our December issue a special section on art. 2021 is no exception to that rule, and I'm pleased to say that our executive editor, James Pinero, has put together an especially strong collection of essays for this special issue. James himself has contributed a fascinating essay on Alexander Lenoir, the art curator, I suppose you would say, who stood between the artistic treasures of Paris and the revolution in France in 1793, 94, 95. It was really, as James says, Lenoir, who was all that stood between art and revolution. Other contributors to this special section include Anthony Daniels, Marco Grassi, Eric Gibson, Karen Wilkin, Nicola Schulman, Andrew Shea, Benjamin Riley, and Peter Penoyer. You won't want to miss it. So here we are, almost halfway through our 40th anniversary season. Regular readers will also know that we are running a year-long series on the subject of Western civilization at the crossroads. In this issue, we are pleased to run an extraordinary essay by Michael Anton, called Unprecedented. As Michael notes, no nation in recorded history has ever willingly opened its doors to millions of immigrants only to insist that they must never adapt to the traditional ways of their new country. Indeed, insisting that they forever remain as foreign as the day they arrive. Similarly, he continues, no country in recorded history has ever welcomed millions with the message that their new country, along with its existing citizens, are inherently evil and out to get them. The situation, as he says, is unprecedented. How will things end? You'll have to read the essay to find out. Now for our notes and comments in the December 2021 issue. The first is called Mostly About Pronouns. The pronoun wars have been raging around us for at least five or six years now. Like so many toxic developments, this sickness was incubated in the university. We began to take notice when the celebrated Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson fell afoul of the pronoun police at his own institution. He became a public pariah and was almost ejected from the school, but was, in effect, rescued by the extraordinary success of his self-help book, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. The malady quickly spread, however. Back in 2018, we had occasion to note how the pronoun wars had infected Williams College, 
always a reliable litmus paper for academic fatuousness. And since then, the practice of people declaring their pronouns and making up ever more extravagant alternatives for the usual vocables, he, his, she, hers, etc., has spread far and wide. A couple of years ago, the metastasis looked complete, with employees at many businesses, especially soft ones like publishing and anything to do with the arts, media, or education, routinely including their preferred pronouns in the signature block of their correspondence. The nadir came when the Biden administration added a menu of pronoun choices to the White House website and announced that government employees would be encouraged to pick their own pronouns. Earlier this autumn, the State Department issued an enthusiastic tweet about a glorious new holiday, International Pronouns Day. So it was really only business as usual to discover that Columbia University has issued an instructional video called Why Pronouns Matter. It is very brief, but also very, if unintentionally, funny. In some accompanying text, the Magi at Columbia inform their readers that, quote, asking for and using correct pronouns is a way to respect those around you, end quote. We agree with that. Using correct grammar in general is a way of showing respect for oneself as well as for those around you. With that in mind, we propose to offer a brief lesson in grammar. We turn first to the rest of that sentence. In addition to showing respect, we read that using the correct pronouns is a way to, quote, create an inclusive environment for people of all genders and gender expressions, end quote. There are several things wrong with this clause. We can leave the psychobabbly bit about creating an inclusive environment to one side. The real problem involves what your grammar teacher called number. When we are talking about the sexes, what this text calls genders, there are only two, male and female. Therefore, that part of the clause should read both genders. Again, we are all for using the correct pronouns. It is actually pretty straightforward. A pronoun is a substitute for a noun or noun phrase. In English, pronouns have number and gender. Agreement in number and gender is essential if one wants to be correct, as the Columbia Primer suggests that it does. James has his own ticket, and Mary has hers. All men love their own children, but everyone has his own ideas. Not there, it should go without saying, because everyone is singular, and in standard, i.e. correct English, the masculine singular is preferred in such cases. You see how it works. What about z, zir, zirs, g, zir, zirs, and all the other exotic graphemes that have been put forward as possible pronouns? That's an easy one. 
The Columbia Primer offers to instruct us about using the correct pronouns, to which we say Z, Zir, and the rest are not correct, or even pronouns. How about this line from the video? I'm Sen, and I use all pronouns. <laughs> Let us draw a veil. Of course, the real prize in the pronoun wars is not correct grammar, but the display of power and exertion of control. Lewis Carroll's character Humpty Dumpty demonstrated what was at stake in his famous exchange with Alice. I don't know what you mean by glory, Alice said. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, till I tell you. I meant, there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said, in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That's all. Our pronoun warriors and their enablers in the ambient bureaucracy are a lot like Humpty Dumpty. Not only are they habitually contemptuous of those around them, they are also willfully perverse in their arrogant repudiation of reality. Moreover, alas, they are destined to come a cropper on the heels of their own arrogance. We predict that the fatal fall will happen soon, and, as in the original story, will present all the king's horses and all the king's men with an unsalvageable mess. That is okay, though, because it is time that those calling for the reform or revitalization of the university face up to the fact that higher education cannot be reformed. It must be replaced. The fragments of the old dispensation merely tidied up and secured in some safe spot for the transition. The New Order There are a handful of institutions that have not succumbed to the various madnesses affecting the culture of higher education. Hillsdale College, Grove City, St. Thomas Aquinas, and sundry others. But we desperately need new institutions to replace the ones shattered on the shoals of political correctness. We are pleased to report, therefore, on the advent of the University of Austin, a new liberal arts college dedicated to, quote, the fearless pursuit of truth. That's easy to say. Harvard's motto, after all, is veritas stops sniggering, and Yale's is looks at Veritas. Does anyone believe it any longer? Those words are empty at most colleges and universities because the institutions have bartered truth for wokeness and the imperatives of identity politics. So, skepticism is justified. On its website, uaustin.org, the University of Austin has a list of frequently asked questions. One in particular caught our notice. Quote, nearly every university says it stands for freedom of inquiry. What's different about your university? Answer, 
we mean it. They continue, We are alarmed by the illiberalism and censoriousness prevalent in America's most prestigious universities and what it augurs for the country. But we know that there are enough of us who still believe in the core purpose of higher education, the pursuit of truth. What imparts confidence in this declaration are the people behind it. The president is Pano Canalos, formerly the president of St. John's College in Annapolis. On its board of advisors is a robust group of scholars and public intellectuals, including the historian Neil Ferguson, the journalist Barry Weiss, the evolutionary psychologist Steven Pinker, mathematician and former president of the University of Chicago Robert Zimmer, the historian Wilford M. McClay, the classicist Joshua T. Katz, and others of similar distinction. The university will open its doors this coming summer with a program for, quote, top students from other universities to embark on a, quote, spirited discussion about the most provocative questions that often lead to censorship or self-censorship in many universities. In the fall of 2022, the university will begin offering several MA programs. In the fall of 2024, Canalos hopes to launch the university's undergraduate college. This is a bold and indeed a risky undertaking, but one that we wholeheartedly support. The educational establishment in this country is worse than moribund. It is a disaster, and not, to adapt an image from the philosopher David Stowe, a static disaster like a bombed-out building. No, it is the active, contagious kind, like a badly leaking nuclear reactor or an outbreak of foot-and-mouth disease. The time for remedial tinkering is over. New institutions are needed if we are to keep that old flame of free inquiry alive. We welcome the University of Austin to the fray. Gerald J. Rossello, 1971-2021 It is with great sadness that we mark the passing of Gerald Rossello, who died at the shockingly young age of 50 last month, after a year-long illness. Gerald was a lawyer and a distinguished one. He clerked for Justice Daniel J. O'Hearn of the New Jersey Supreme Court and Judge Leonard I. Garth of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. But to note that professional affiliation is a bit like saying that Wallace Stevens was an insurance man. Like Stevens, Gerald's professional career functioned as the enabler of what we like to think of as his real career as a writer, thinker, and editor. Gerald wrote for many publications here and in England, including First Things, The Wall Street Journal, Literary Review, Modern Age, and The Review of Politics. He wrote nearly 20 pieces for The New Criterion beginning in 1999, with a review of essays by John J. Chapman, 1862-1933, The Great American Man of Letters, and ending just last June with a piece on that most urbane of contemporary novelists, Louis Auchincloss.
1917 to 2010. Those literary bookends indicate a real but ultimately subordinate aspect of Gerald's intellectual interests. Closer to the center were figures like Edmund Burke. Above all, Gerald was occupied with religious literary thinkers like G.K. Chesterton. He was a member of the Chesterton Society, the artist-poet David Jones, and Russell Kirk. Gerald was a prominent part of the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal, serving as editor of the University Bookman, the publication that Kirk started in 1960, from 2005 until his death. Gerald also found time to write or edit five books, including The Postmodern Imagination of Russell Kirk in 2007. In The Unwritten Constitution, his contribution to our symposium commemorating the centenary of Russell Kirk's birth in 2018, Gerald honed in on a debate about the ultimate foundations of the law that continues to be very much alive. Quote, Kirk, in his writings on the law, understood that if the customs of a people change, then the law changes as well, even if written texts remain the same. So it was important for citizens to be mindful of and preserve those traditions that supported local government and established practices and understandings. Without those attachments, self-government suffers, and those attachments are only partially attributable to reasoning from abstract rights. We have become too Lockean. We understand ourselves as rights-bearing autonomous individuals entering the public square to which we give our contingent consent. It is unclear whether our constitutional structure can survive on such a thin basis, especially when our notion of the rights that an individual bears expands endlessly. End quote. That last bit might have been torn from the front page of today's newspaper, while the comment on Locke zeroes in on a lively scholarly debate. Gerald Rossello was one of the most modest and decorous of men, but his intellect was bold, tenacious, and penetrating. Requiescat in pace. This is Roger Kimball, signing off for the new Criterion. I'll see you next month.